Good evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight we have for our subject the second commandment and the third commandment. And I'm sure you'll all be really devastated when I tell you that we're probably only going to go 30 or 40 minutes tonight. (laughs) Bummer. But these commandments are fairly straightforward. Uh, They pretty much say everything there is to say about them in the text of the commandments themselves. So the second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I love to preach when given the Ten Commandments as the readings for the Mass. I love to preach about the fact that Each of these commandments, even though most of them, including the second, is expressed as a prohibition, we probably are better served to understand them as affirmations of something as sacred, of something as holy. So when God commands us not to take his name in vain, we should understand that what he is really telling us is that his name is holy. And so this commandment is directly an expression of the virtue of religion, which we talked about last time. The virtue which gives to God what is his due. In this case, specifically, appropriate use of the gift of speech. Appropriate use of language in reference to him. The Catechism tells us that there is a unique word in all of Revelation, and that is God's own name. It's referred to as the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, usually pronounced Yahweh today. But we don't actually know how it was pronounced by God when he spoke it, because Hebrew doesn't have vowels. And so we don't know exactly how it was pronounced. Uh, But... Uh, It is written Y-H-W-H, and throughout the scriptures, usually it is substituted with Lord, uh, Adonai, because the Israelites rightly treated God's own name, the way he identified himself to them, to Moses, as so sacred that they could not even repeat it. There's good reason for us, therefore, not to use this name in, in common speech. Uh, ordinarily. We should treat his name with such reverence that we don't use it unless we really are speaking about him precisely. Uh, But I think that obligation goes beyond just the Tetragrammaton to any word that we would use specifically to refer to him. Reverencing the name of God is an expression of respect to God himself. And in fact, during the liturgy and preaching and catechesis, 
we should continue that reverence. And not only for the word God, but even more for the name of Jesus, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps if you've attended Mass where I've been presiding, and I know all of you have, you've noticed that I bow my head many times during the Mass. I do that first and foremost for the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three names, when given together, we should give a solemn bow. The name of Jesus Christ also should lead us to bow our heads. And then, in a smaller way, the name of Mary, and, and still smaller, the name of the saint of the day, whoever that is, or the saint whom we venerate at that particular liturgy. In the Old Mass, uh, you would see a priest who was not preaching, but who was at Mass, wearing a beretta during the homily, the funny cupcake-looking square hat that a priest would wear. I have two. <laughs> I don't wear them very often because they are goofy-looking. <laughs> they do look like a cupcake. But uh, they, the priest would tip his hat. He would take his hat off and bow his head whenever the name of Jesus was spoken. This should be actually our habit. In, we, it might even help us to practice this, this commandment more fully, to have that habit not only during the liturgy, but all the time. This is why some will refer to, to Christ by the name Christ or by the title Lord, uh, the Lord, uh, because this is not his name. Christ is a title. Lord is a title. And, and so we can honor him, honor those titles, but not necessarily bow. <laughs> and then our Nick doesn't get his title. There are four principal kinds of offenses against this commandment. Abuse of God's name is the most common. Uh, every time we improperly or, or casually use the name of God, Jesus Christ, or the Virgin Mary, or all the saints, we sin against this commandment. It's probably a good thing that there are no teenage girls here. <laughs> or they might be in tears if they let their guilt really uh, hit them. Because the, the expression, oh my God, is ubiquitous in our culture. It's hard to find a movie that doesn't have it at least once. But this is actually a serious sin, a grave sin. It's a direct violation of the second commandment. And I don't need to say any more. <laughs> uh, now, uh, if you ever encounter somebody who commits this sin frequently, if it's you <laughs> or someone who confides in you, someone who would trust you to, to lead them away from sin, I would encourage you to either yourself or, or encourage them to break that habit by turning it into a prayer. Every time you say his name, even casually, even flippantly, even thoughtlessly, speak to him. You've got his attention. And if it's someone uh, close to you, like a child or a spouse, you might point out how absurd it would be to use someone else's name 
in a similar context. Like, oh, my mom. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Ridiculous. (laughs) Right? Um, And even more if we were to use a proper name. Uh, Another offense against this commandment is to make a promise to another in God's name that you don't intend to keep. Or that you're not certain you have the power to keep. The general category of, or the the broad category of a a variety of abuses of this commandment, violations of this commandment, is blasphemy. Uh, One form of blasphemy is speaking ill of God. Attributing to him things that are not true of him. Accusing him of being evil or malicious or desiring our harm or suffering. That's a form of blasphemy. It's a strong temptation when one really is suffering, especially when one really understands providence, because God does allow that suffering. But he never desires our suffering. He only allows it for our good. Speaking against God, hatred, reproach, or defiance, another form of blasphemy. Using God's name for magical purposes, as if to command God to do whatever you desire, as if to, by, by invoking God, you'll get your way in whatever you want. I do not think that there is a problem with praying for the Packers to win a football game. But invoking God's name over the Packers as if that will somehow dictate the outcome is a blasphemy. There is nothing on earth that is beyond or outside of God's concern. He really does care. Therefore, we can legitimately pray for the outcome of a sports game that we want. But to do so as if we have control over it thereby is spiritually very dangerous. Blasphemy is a grave sin. To use God's name flippantly is a mortal sin if done willfully and and freely. If you encounter someone who maybe isn't your confidant who commits this sin commonly, you might very gently nudge them in the right direction. I have a friend who says Jesus' name casually. And I'll gently remind him in front of everybody else, he loves you. (laughs) Blasphemy is a sin against the holiness of God's name. Taking the name of the Lord in vain is invoking God Inappropriately. Invoking him when you really ought not to do so. The the catechism speaks of taking the name of the Lord in vain 
specifically in terms of an oath. Whether you invoke the name of God when you take an oath or not, implicitly you are doing so. To take an oath or to swear, I swear that I will, is implicitly to call on God as a witness of whatever it is you are affirming. It is asking the person you're speaking to to place greater trust in what you're saying because you're attributing it or connecting it to the truthfulness of God. Therefore, we must make an absolute utmost effort to reject any kind of false oath. Perjury is either making an oath, making a promise under oath with no intention of keeping it, or failing to keep a promise made under oath. So we, th- we have a tendency to think of perjury as lying in a courtroom. But it's actually broader than that. Lying in a courtroom is perjury because one is under oath when one is giving testimony in a courtroom. But any time you take an oath or swear but lie, you're perjuring yourself. The Catechism says explicitly, The holiness of the divine name demands that we neither use it for trivial matters nor take an oath which on the basis of the circumstances could be interpreted as an approval of an authority unjustly requiring it. Taking an oath, when an oath is required by illegitimate authorities, it may be refused. So if we were to be required to take an oath against Christianity, that that Christianity is untrue, for example, we would be absolutely obliged to refuse. One of the reasons that this is so dangerous, that taking God's name is so dangerous, taking his name in vain, is that it can provoke others, it can lead others to dismiss religion altogether. I was watching a TV show the other night wherein a Christian, not Catholic, pastor said to someone, whether you believe in God is not really all that important. What really matters is how we treat each other. I'm sure you've all encountered something along those lines. Perhaps you've encountered priests who've implied the same. This is implicit when we take God's name in vain, but treat each other well. We are giving greater justice to our neighbors than to God. This is This diminishes the value or importance of religion. The last commentary in the Catechism on this commandment refers to our Christian names. And I want to read 
paragraph 2156 because it's not something that I think is commonly understood or accepted. The sacrament of baptism is conferred in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, the Lord's name sanctifies man, and the Christian receives his name in the church, his Christian name. Parents, sponsors, and the pastor are to see that a name is not given which is foreign to Christian sentiment. I've heard stories of pastors changing the name that parents give a, give a child at baptism. This is not recent. <laughs> These are old stories. Where they would add Christopher or Peter or Joseph or Mary to a child's name because the child was given a pagan name that didn't have any reference to the saints or to any virtue. Strictly speaking, I don't think that that is necessary. Because otherwise, how would we get any new saint names? (laughs) But we should take seriously the opportunity that is presented to us to name our children after the saints, to name our children after the virtues, to name our children in such a way that their name gives honor to God. And in a line that fits well with Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, if you haven't read it, you should, (laughs) the Catechism says that everyone's name is sacred. Dale Carnegie says that the most precious word to any person is their name. There's no word that they would rather hear. There's no word that has as much power over them based on the way, the intonation with which it is said. It can evoke fear or peace with one word. The reason for this is that the name, our names are like an icon. They point to the person who bears them, and therefore they should be treated with the dignity that is to be given to the person who bears them. This foreshadows what we'll say about the Eighth Commandment, about bearing false witness and slander. So much for the Second Commandment. Any questions? So, I would say, unless you're speaking to him, yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. So, I would say, unless you're addressing God, or actually asking your sister to give her attention to God, yeah, that is probably sinful. Tomorrow <laughs> at 5 p.m. Um, I have said, oh my God, in the past, and my son has corrected me and says, can you make that into a sentence? 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Turn it into a prayer. Actually speak to him. <laughs> exactly. So, I would argue, and there are other priests and theologians who are uh, a little bit more meticulous than I, I would argue that that is not necessarily a sin at all. Uh, It's not referencing God's own name. Now, if your intention is actually to condemn whatever you're referring to, to hell, that is a sin. (laughs) Because God does not have such malice toward anyone. And nor should we. But if that is not your intention at all, if you're not directing it toward anyone or anything, but rather are just blowing off steam, probably not a sin at all. An imperfection, yes. <laughs> right? Because it's, it's not pointing you or anyone else around you to God. It's not helping you be holier. But... Certainly not a serious sin. Does that make sense? It, it, that is what it comes from. But if and and so if that is your intention, yes, that is sinful. Don't do that. But I think it can be said without intending that. Um, and so I'm not, I don't go around saying that. <laughs> and I'm not endorsing that anyone go around saying that. But I think if one certainly has no intention of any harm to what they're talking about or, or, what they're, uh, or any person, I don't think they mean that. And, and so I, I don't think it carries anything like the gravity that it would. Great. The third commandment, I don't think this will be difficult for any of you, but this is a commandment that is very neglected by Catholics today. It's probably the mortal sin that I hear most frequently confessed. And that's among people who go to confession. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. The Sabbath refers to Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And it has a twofold symbolic meaning. It recalls creation, the day on which God rested, and It serves as a memorial of the Exodus, of God's liberating the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Not in so clear a symbolic way as the seventh day on which God rested, but because God commanded rest on this day as a memorial of my power liberating you from Egypt. It is a sign of God's covenantal love, his covenantal relationship with the Israelites. 
It is a, a whole day set apart for God, set apart for them to remember their relationship with him and to honor him. Thus, it brings our work to a halt. It should, at least. And I know for myself, this is not something, well, especially as a priest, I work on Sundays. (laughs) My work, thankfully, on Sundays is exactly the kind of rest that we should be participating in. But it should provide a kind of respite from the workaday world. It is a day of protest in relation to the secular world, protest against the kind of slavery that our work can create for us. And it is also a protest against the worship of money. I think that line from the Catechism, it is a protest against the worship of money, should ring loudly in our ears and in our consciences, especially those of us who are employers. Why do businesses stay open on Sunday? Think especially of fast food. Why do fast food places stay open on Sunday? Because they can make more money. Is there any need for a fast food place to stay open? I can see a case being made for grocery stores. Maybe. But fast food places, do they need to be open on Sunday? No. They're open because they want to make more money. And the same could be said of so many businesses. To rest on Sunday is a protest against the worship of money. It is an active way that we can say, I am going to put rest and my relationship with God ahead of my love of money, of my, care, my concerns about money. The Gospel recounts many incidents when Jesus was accused of violating the Sabbath law. I once joked in a homily, does he ever perform miracles not on the Sabbath? <laughs> but Jesus actually never fails to respect the holiness of the Sabbath, but rather he gives it its authentic interpretation. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us to be in right relationship with God and to put him first, not to constrain us, but to free us. In the Christian covenant, the Sabbath rest is transferred to the Lord's Day, to Sunday. This, I always stump the kids when I am teaching them about the Mass and the obligation to attend Mass on Sunday. I ask them, why do we go to Mass on Sunday? And one of the first answers they'll give is because it's the Sabbath. Wrong. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Now, it is the way we, as Christians, observe this third commandment. But Sunday is the first day of creation and the day that Christ rose from the dead, the day of the new creation. 
In this way, it is a fulfillment of everything that was signified by Saturday, by the Sabbath rest. Because it not, only, it, it not only points us to our need for rest in this life, but it points us forward to our hope for eternal rest in heaven, in the resurrection. And it fulfills the natural law, the precept of the natural law, that we are to render to God an outward, visible, public, and regular worship. That's what the Sabbath did for the Israelites. Sunday does the same for us as Christians. I also found this a really important line to highlight from the Catechism. This is a direct quote. Sunday is the day on which the Paschal mystery is celebrated in light of the apostolic tradition and is to be observed as the foremost day of obligation in the universal church. How many Catholics do you think know that, much less practice it? It is the foremost day of obligation. Not Christmas, not Easter, Sunday. We might think of, we might be tempted to think of Sunday as a little Easter. But it's actually the other way around. Easter is a big Sunday. Sunday is the normative feast for Christians. And Easter Sunday is just the greatest of all Sundays. So if you feel so bold, point your relatives and friends who are Catholics who only go to Mass on Christmas and Easter, the Christers, as I like to call them, to this line. Sunday is the foremost day of obligation, not Christmas. The other feasts set forward as days of obligation by the universal law, these are modified for the United States, are Christmas, Epiphany, the Ascension, Corpus Christi, Feast of Mary, Mother of God, our patroness here at St. Mary's, the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption, the Feast of St. Joseph, the Feast of St. Peter and Paul, and the Feast of All Saints. I went through that really quickly. You can find it in the Catechism if you're looking. Or you can just Google it. In the United States, that list is much smaller, actually, because Epiphany is transferred to Sunday, Ascension is transferred to Sunday, Corpus Christi is usually transferred to Sunday, Mary, Mother of God, is a holy day of obligation, as is the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. St. Joseph is not a day of obligation. Peter and Paul is not a day of obligation, and all saints. So it's really actually much shorter than that in the United States. So there's really no excuse not to do it. But everything that the church says about the Sunday obligation also applies to those other days. And so I think we don't have an obligation to do this, but I think insofar as one is able one might spend a vacation day on those few days of obligation so as to not only attend Mass, 
but to make that whole day a day of celebration and rest. I have a cousin who's a Dominican, and she said in her pithy way, to fast on a feast day is as grievous an offense as to feast on a Friday. Friday is a day of penance. We all have to do some penance. I've talked about this before. The universal norm is abstinence from meat. Outside of Lent in the United States, we can substitute something else. But we all have to do some penance on Fridays. But my cousin's point is that we also have to celebrate on feast days, including Sundays. If we don't, we're abusing the church. We're abusing this obligation to keep holy the Sabbath. The precept of the church with respect to our obligation is that we have an obligation to participate in the Mass. We satisfy this obligation not by watching the Mass on TV or live stream, even if we're homebound. Those who are homebound are actually simply free of this obligation. The church does not oblige us to do that which we are not capable of doing. This is why despite the fact that some people are still at home, we no longer live stream the Mass here. We don't want to encourage people to watch the Mass at home, and there are other places that people can watch the Mass if they want. The precept is participated, or is, of participating in the Mass is satisfied by attending at Mass, assistance at Mass, which is celebrated anywhere in a Catholic rite either on the holy day or the evening of the preceding day. In the United States, that's normally f considered 4 o'clock or later. In much of Europe, it's noon or later. Uh, unless a person is excused for a serious reason, for example, illness, or the care of infants, or the care of someone who is incapable of caring for themselves, even someone in old age, or unless someone is dispensed by their pastor, and Monsignor and I will not dispense you unless you have one of those reasons that would dispense you anyways, so you don't need a dispensation, to deliberately miss Mass, or to by neglect, Miss Mass is a mortal sin, a grave sin. Part of the reason that this is a precept of the church is that participating in the Sunday Mass is one of the ways that we act as witnesses, that we give testimony to our belonging and being faithful to Christ and his church. The precept requires that we attend Mass. But the fullness of this commandment requires that we take Sunday and the other holy days as a day of rest from work. That rest should be used to give us time to cultivate our family life, to cultivate our participation in the broader culture, to sanctify the culture, to sanctify our friendships, and above all, to cultivate our religious life. Deacon Harmon, I think many of you have attended, uh, this past summer started offering 
uh, evening prayer and benediction on Sunday evenings at, at 5 p.m. when our adoration time ends. This is a beautiful way for a parish to cultivate our religious life on this day of rest. On Sundays, another, another direct quote. This one is in the Catechism, but it's a direct quote from Canon Law. On Sundays and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are to refrain from engaging in work or activities that hinder the worship owed to God, the joy proper to the Lord's day, the performance of the works of mercy, and the appropriate relaxation of mind and body. I know as a student I never followed this, and I've confessed that. But those of you who have students in your lives, teach them this. Teach them to not keep their homework until Sunday. I know colleges tend to have a party culture. Party Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, cram on Sunday. The two are paired together. That unhealthy party culture is paired together with an unhealthy form of rest, a selfish form of rest, that doesn't prepare to rest in a healthy way that sanctifies the day, that, that leads us to joy, that leads us to deeper into our relationship with God on Sunday. Family needs importance or important social services can legitimately excuse us from the obligation of Sunday rest. Not Sunday Mass, Sunday rest. If you have to take care of a loved one and you have to do the work that is required on a Sunday, then you have to do the work. But we should see to it that such legitimate excuses do not lead to habits that lead us away from making Sunday a day of rest. We can sanctify Sunday by devoting time to our families and relatives. And I think it's also a beautiful practice to dedicate extra time for prayer on Sundays. Sundays are a good day for pilgrimage. Especially this time of year, I can't endorse strongly enough going to Holy Hill. Even if just to walk the Stations of the Cross, it's beautiful this time of year. And Sunday's a good day for it. Perhaps the most difficult aspect of this is that in order for a culture to really live this, requires a common effort. Everybody has to be engaged. We have to avoid making unnecessary demands on others that would hinder them from observing the Lord's day. Now, sometimes we might have to go to the grocery store on Sunday. But if we can avoid it, we should. We should try to go on Saturday or Monday. If we can avoid it, we should avoid going to a fast food restaurant on Sunday. Now, the Catechism explicitly says traditional activities, sports, restaurants, and social necessities, public services, do require some people to work on Sundays. The Catechism acknowledges that. So this is not to say you can never go out for a good meal on Sunday. But to what extent we can, we should avoid trying to expect other people to work on Sundays. And we should do the same ourselves. 
employers should protect this for their employees. And as members of a democratic society, we should seek to use the law to promote laws that recognize Sundays and the very few church holy days as legal holidays. Where do you think the term holiday comes from? We should seek to protect them in law as days of rest, to what extent we can. By doing so, we give a public, public example of prayer and the joy of what it is to be a Christian. Any questions? Thank you for that question. They're not. Um, I obviously didn't emphasize enough. If you work in a job, in a field, or if someone works in a field where they are unable to attend Mass because of their work, truly unable, like if you work 12-hour shifts Saturday and Sunday, uh, so from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or or something like that, and there are no masses that you could physically get to. There's no obligation for you. You are free of that obligation. Now, if it is in your power to ask for one of those two days off, you should do so. Right? Because worshiping God is our first priority. But sometimes that's not possible. And the church acknowledges that and does not treat that as a mortal sin. The way I like to put it in confession is that willfully choosing not to go to Mass is a grave sin. Willfully choosing to neglect the obligation to attend Mass, to just not care, is a grave sin. The the way that this is really common is not so much work, because again, that's not a sin at all. The way that this is really, really common is when people go on vacation. They think, well, I'm on vacation. I don't want to put anybody out. I don't want to make everybody adjust their plans around the fact that I want to go to Mass. No. You have an obligation to go to Mass. And it comes before anything else. If you can't... Think about it this way. If you could not... If you could not keep your job because your job provides for your basic needs. You need to do it. If you could not keep your job and go on a vacation that you have in mind, probably you just wouldn't go. Well, if you can't attend Mass, which is an even greater obligation than the obligation to provide for your children, the obligation to provide for your own basic needs, material needs, If you can't go to Mass, then don't go on the vacation. Now, thankfully, in the United States, there are very few places where there isn't a Mass within at least half an hour. Very few places. But I had seminary friends who loved uh, canoeing, and they loved to go to the Boundary Waters. And you can get a lot further into the Boundary Waters if you go for eight days as opposed to four. 
And they really wrestled with this. Well, I just can't get to Mass. That's true. If you're in the middle of the Boundary Waters, you can't get to Mass. But you don't have to go to the Boundary Waters. And you certainly don't have to go for eight days. I know it's tough. But do we love God first? Do we love him above everything else, including the Boundary Waters? We should. (laughs) But that was a very good question. Certainly there are professions where maybe not every week, but from time to time especially, uh, the, the work obligations prevent us from getting to Mass. That happens. And then there's no obligation uh, for you when you have a legitimate reason that is not within your control. Now, I've counseled people who work not in healthcare, but in retail, and they were given the Sunday shift. And this is not somebody who's who's built a long-term career and, and they're at a point where they just have to do this for a short time. This is somebody at an entry level and they're not planning to stay in this career forever and, and they are stuck with all the weekend shifts. And they truly can't get to a Saturday evening Mass or a Sunday Mass during the day. Okay, you're not committing a sin now, but as the Catechism says about letting real obligations create habits. If you can get a different job, do that. Get a job that allows you to practice your faith more fully. Does that make sense? So I don't want to give the impression that the church is just harsh about this. But I also don't want to give the impression that it, it, it's really, it can be grayed away. No, we do have an obligation to attend Mass and to rest. So, for me, for me, that's a great question. What about work that, that is uh, not oriented toward uh, a paycheck, but chores? I think the question that I would put to you is, can you really consider that leisure? I think it depends. For me, where my work is mostly intellectual, my work is principally counseling people, writing homilies. You know, it, it's more in the head than in the hands. For me, in the last five years, one of the most restful days I ever had in, in these five years that I've been a priest was out at my grandf- grandfather's farm cutting out a stump. <laughs> Everything else was gone. I was just focused on that. That was really restful. So I think there is room for that. I love cutting cutting the grass. I really enjoy it. I don't get the opportunity to do it much anymore. (laughs) And and so that really is restful. I think if if your household chores, or if you can set aside for Sunday household chores that really are restful and life-giving, that's good. That's restful. But if they're i got to do the vacuuming, i got to do the laundry, i got to do just the routine chores that are not restful, that are just work. They're homework, but work. No. If you, to what extent you are able, put that on a different day. So if you're doing something 
Great. Totally. I know a priest, I know a priest in Green Bay who does that whenever it rains. <laughs> he finds great comfort in making chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> I have once or twice benefited from that joy. <laughs> but yes, I think that's, that's great. Sunday is a great day for hobbies. It doesn't all have to be intellectual. It doesn't all have to be sitting in church praying, but really rested. If, if this is a topic that really interests you, um, and, and you're willing to try your hand at a little bit of philosophy, I strongly encourage you to read the book um, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, written by Joseph Pieper, who is arguably one of the best philosophers of the 20th century. Um, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. It's a great, great little book. It's not very long, probably 100 pages or less. Uh, and it, it powerfully depicts the importance of rest and the fact that rest is not computer games or TV or movies. That's not real rest. That's not real leisure. Uh, not even watching football. The reason, the, so, and don't get me wrong, I like to watch a football game on a Sunday. <laughs> the reason that those are not real leisure is because they don't, except for great art, like great movies, most is just vacuous entertainment. It's not helping you become a better person. It's not helping you understand humanity better. It's not helping you understand yourself better. It's just filling time with empty entertainment. Is that sinful? I would say, no, that's not sinful. You can do that on a Sunday. But I certainly don't think your whole Sunday should be filled with that. I think that most of your Sunday should be filled with real rest and prayer and, and things that expand your soul, that, that make you more magnanimous. And most TV just doesn't do that. Now, great movies do. I think Casablanca does that. <laughs> I think the movie Calvary, if you haven't seen that, see it. But not on a day that you're looking for a fun time. It's a heavy movie. But that is my favorite movie. Those movies, I think, do expand your soul. So there is room for that. But What's it called? Calvary. I think it came out in 2010. 2009 or 2010. Uh, with Brendan Gleeson. Really heavy movie. Be prepared to, like, feel it. Any other questions? Well... <laughs>